millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello. And welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 9, Enter Khadija. Assalamu alaikum, hello and welcome back to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. Now before we begin, I just want to apologize for the lack of an episode last week. Um, I came across some unforeseen circumstances and I run a very tight schedule, a very tight timetable where if one spanner gets thrown into the works, I'm, I'm done for and I don't have enough time to create an episode. I am a full-time student, so hopefully it doesn't happen again. But anyway, let's go on to our new episode today. Last episode, we ended with a teenage Muhammad who had just partaken in his clan's oath to initiate an alliance that we said became known as the League of the Virtuous. I think it is worth noting now that one of the Qurashi clans that had joined as a member of that league was the clan of Taim, Beni Taim, the sons of Taim. As you may recall, that's the norm. So if I give you a clan name, then most of the time that clan name is derived from some ascendant, some ancestor of that tribe that they had in common, and they would uh, call themselves the sons of that person. So the clan of Tame were the Beni Tame, the sons of Tame. Anyway, amongst this clan was a boy who was a year or two younger than Muhammad. And his name was Abdullah. And the two teens had taken a liking to one another and it didn't take too long for them to develop a close friendship. Now I mention this because later on, Abdullah is going to play quite a prominent role in the life of Muhammad. But for now, Let's move forward. As the years passed, Muhammad had by now passed his 20th year. And as the years passed, he had managed to carve out opportunities for himself in order to better his standard of living and to better the situation that he had been born into. Muhammad, as one of the Beni Hashim, had always been interested in trade, but as an orphan, he had never been able to scrape together enough money for himself so that he could use that amount as capital that would be necessary in a typical trading trip. Eventually, however, Muhammad would find a lucky break, and the break arrived in the form of a merchant who was, for one reason or another, unable to travel himself to sell his goods. 
So Muhammad was hired and asked to supervise and take charge of the merchant's goods and in return he would be paid a commission on the sales that he managed to make. After his success in this capacity and due to his upright character that he became famous for, this opportunity then led to somewhat of a snowballing and other similar engagements being proposed to Muhammad as word of his character and word of his success spread. And it wasn't long before he became known as As-Sadiq and more commonly Al-Amin. As-Sadiq meaning truthful and honest and Al-Amin meaning trustworthy and faithful. By the time he had reached his 25th year, word of Muhammad had reached a woman called Khadija bint Khuwailid. Khadija, the daughter of Khuwailid. Now Khadija was a widow who had actually already married twice with children from her previous marriages. Since the death of her second husband, she had managed to amass for herself somewhat of a notable fortune, which she had further expanded through her trading activities. As a woman, however, it had been custom for her to hire men to trade on her behalf. Previously, it seems that Khadija's profits had sometimes suffered, or at least failed to hit their full potential. And the reason for this seems to be that the people that she had hired previously, or the people that had been available for her to hire, had sort of skimmed off the top. As you can imagine, it wouldn't be too difficult to do so. So, naturally, when Khadija heard that there was somebody out there that had built a solid reputation for themselves as being somebody uh, that was honest and trustworthy uh, as a trader for hire, she was intrigued. And so she hired him with the simple task of taking some goods north to the Byzantine Empire, selling them off, and then using the money from those sales to buy some goods from Syria to bring back to Arabia to sell. When Muhammad returned from his trading trip in Syria, Khadija was able to sell the new goods that Muhammad had acquired for her for almost double of what they had cost. Needless to say, Khadija was impressed. So impressed with Muhammad's character and his personality that she thought about the possibility of marrying this man. She ended up confiding in one of her best friends who offered to approach Muhammad on her behalf and after an exchange with Muhammad, the friend returned with Khadija to tell her that what she had gained from her conversation was that Muhammad was willing to marry her. So Khadija offered herself to him in marriage and after that, all that was left to be done were the formalities. Muhammad then went to his uncles seeking their blessing and representation. They agreed and the Beni Hashim sent a delegation asking for the hand of Khadija in marriage, officially. The two clans agreed, and Muhammad had to give a dowry of 20 she-camels. At the time of the marriage, Muhammad would have been around 25 years old, so the marriage would have taken place sometime around 595 AD. Khadija, on the other hand, was said to be around 40 years old, There's a possibility that this is a rounded figure and that she was actually in her late, maybe even mid-30s. However, even the smallest of estimates for her age agreed that she was older than Muhammad by quite a margin. I'd also like to point out at this point that the age of 25 was actually later than usual 
amongst the Arabs for marriage. The reason why Muhammad was late to marry was probably a reflection of his status as an orphan and a reflection of his financial status, his poverty. Uh, even though he had managed to find some success as a trader for hire, those opportunities were were quite rare. And as we said, most of his income would have come from working as a shepherd. Quite a menial job. I like to look at 19th century or even early 20th century Bedouin society when I want to look for a clearer idea of society because there's a wider range of uh, sources that are easily accessible for us today. You can find a lot of these books free online. Uh, For example, the book that I'm going to mention now. And the reason why I like to look at 19th century and early 20th century as well is that, believe it or not, a lifestyle as isolated from civilization as the Bedouin lifestyle, you find that not much changes over the centuries. An American missionary named Samuel Zwema, uh, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, actually, uh, he was the guy that I quoted on his travels in the Yemen when he witnessed the flash floods. Uh, Samuel Zwema was an American missionary to Arabia. He went to spread uh, Christianity, obviously. And he traveled throughout Arabia and naturally he observed the Bedouins and their culture firsthand. And he wrote in a book published in the year 1900 that the children of Arabia appear like little old men and women to Western eyes. The childhood of the Bedouin Arab was an incredibly brief one. The Bedouin child uh, has to bury all things childish pretty early. At the age of 10, a child would be working full-time, the boys sent off to lead camels, and the girls sent off to herd sheep. By the age of 15, they are joined the matrimony. And our missionary Samuel also remarks that he found that there were boys of 18 who had already divorced two wives. So, Muhammad, by remaining a bachelor basically until the age of 25, uh, was, was quite late. Uh, if, if, now this is just speculation, if he had been, uh, if he had not been an orphan, if his father or mother, more importantly, if his father was still alive, he probably would have been married much, much earlier, most likely while he was still a child, actually. So an arranged marriage that would have been decided by uh, his father, not on personal grounds, but more political grounds. These arranged political sort of marriages um, as you can imagine uh, late antiquity uh, medieval period were quite prevalent for the time and one more point about marriage before we move on an evidence that we have for Muhammad's financial situation being the reason why he was a bit late to marry is that we see instances where he was actually looking to get married, uh, actively asking for someone's daughter, uh, someone's daughter's hand in marriage, and being rejected basically, but politely um, undergrounds of uh, of of financial incapability. Regardless of Muhammad's somewhat lateness to a married life, and the difference in age between the couple. The marriage between Muhammad and Khadija was ultimately an incredibly happy one. Life continued in Mecca as usual, and over the next 10 years, Khadija gave birth to five children, a son, 
and four daughters. Their eldest child was a son who they named Qasim. Muhammad actually gained a nickname during this period as Abu Qasim, the father of Qasim, which was quite common for someone's nickname to be after their firstborn son or firstborn daughter. Uh, and this is actually still prevalent today, it still happens today uh, in the Arab community. Um, I think even a few non-Arab Muslims actually still use it. So you'll find uh, a lot of men being uh, known in their social circles as father of, insert, firstborn child here. Anyway, Qasim, Muhammad's firstborn child, died in his infancy, uh, not even reaching his second birthday. After him came four daughters in succession, Zainab, then Ruqayya, who was followed by Umm Kulthum, and then finally Fatima, who was the youngest amongst the girls. Close to the point of the birth of Umm Kulthum, the third of the daughters, uh, some eight years after Muhammad's marriage to Khadija, the environs of Mecca and the whole Hejaz really, the Hejaz, if you remember, is that western region of Arabia. If you're still unsure about the geographical regions, then head over to the blog where there's a video of me explaining it or onto the gallery on the blog where there is a picture of the regions and how I have split them up. Anyway, the whole Hejaz was hit with a severe and widespread drought. And the famine that hit Mecca as a result of this drought made life quite difficult for a lot of people. One of them was Muhammad's uncle and his final guardian, Abu Talib. Abu Talib's problem was that he had more children than he could afford to support. So Muhammad and one of his wealthier uncles, Abbas, proposed to Abu Talib that they should each take a child of his and raise them up in their household, feed and clothe them, so as to ease the heavy burden on Abu Talib's shoulders. And this was so. This was the responsibility uh, that a family had, or that a clan had, to to support one another in times of need. Uh, in 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 modern society, we have the welfare state, but back then, in antiquity, uh, in pre-modern ages, the welfare state didn't exist the same way we know of it today. So you relied on your family and your tribe as we have already discussed extensively to support you when the going gets tough. Abu Talib accepted their proposal and Abbas took charge of a son named Jafar who was about 15 years old and Muhammad took charge of another of Abu Talib's sons who was called Ali and he was about 5 years old. In a sense this adoption, the induction of Ali ibn Abi Talib uh, into the household of Muhammad had also served to fill the hole in Muhammad's life that was shaped by the untimely and premature death of his son Qasim. The next major or at least somewhat notable event that we find at this point in Muhammad's life is the rebuilding of the Kaaba, which is the cuboid building in Mecca, the famous cuboid building. And this was about 10 years after his marriage to Khadija. So Muhammad would have been about 35 years old. So arguably no longer a, a youth, no longer a young man. The Kaaba had fallen into what was basically uh, a, a state in dire need of repairs. 
and also a few tweaks here and there. At this point in time, we're talking the dawn of the 7th century, uh, about 605 AD, the Kaaba in structure was quite different from the building we see today in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Uh, for starters, today the Kaaba is about 40 feet high. That's over 10 meters. But back then, it was it was much lower. Uh, today, another difference is that the walls, I believe, are more or less equal in length, hence the square base and the cube-like appearance. But back then, it was a much more rectangular building. Um, today, the actual door to the Kaaba is about two meters off the ground. Uh, if you look at pictures or video, you see that the door is actually... The height of the people going around the Kaaba does not reach the door, so it's it's quite high up. You cannot access it uh, if you wanted to. It'll be it'll be quite a, quite a little climb. I also put a video in the episode guide where you can actually see that whenever someone needs to enter the Kaaba, um, whether it's for maintenance or they have a special guest, they have to wheel over a set of stairs or uh, a ramp to the door of the Kaaba so that the person can access it. Back then, however, the door to the Kaaba was much lower, much closer to ground level. The Kaaba also didn't have a roof back then, which ended up being quite problematic for the Quraysh. And they had issues with people climbing into the Kaaba and stealing things inside it. It's been reported that um, treasures were kept inside the Kaaba. Um, the Kaaba, if you were to imagine it with your mind's eye, also, I think it's very important to note that it didn't stand out the same way it does today. It did stand out to an extent because it was the de facto nucleus of the town. Um, everything sort of pointed towards it. There was a significant clearing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Between it and the first line or, or row of houses in Mecca, but think of it like this. If you were to take the Kaaba and place it within the rows of houses uh, of Mecca in 605 AD, it wouldn't stand out if you didn't know what it was. Whereas if you took the Kaaba that we see today in Saudi Arabia 2016 and placed it within a row of contemporary houses, for example, it would definitely stand out. All that being said, the Quraysh decided that a patch-up job would not be enough to repair the Kaaba and so they agreed to demolish the Kaaba and renovate it completely. Take apart the walls, rebuild them completely, make the structure taller and more impressive and in the process lift up the door to the Kaaba, elevating it so that it was not at ground level, allowing them to restrict access to the Kaaba if they wish to do so and then finally add a much-needed roof to the structure. The project to renovate the Kaaba was a collective effort, 
a, uh, a community effort, if you like. And the work was divided. Clans were grouped and assigned to one of the four walls. When we look at how the clans were grouped, we get a very nice insight into the internal politics of the Quraysh and the relationships between different clans. Which clans got along with each other, which clans didn't, and which clans were at the forefront of things. Uh, which, one, which ones were the ones that were the major rivals that were fighting for political supremacy in Mecca. The Beni Abdelmanef and their closely allied clans such as the Beni Zuhra were assigned to the Eastern Wall which was the side which had the door on it. The Beni Makhzum and their closely allied clans were assigned the Southern Wall. The Beni Abdeddar and their closely allied clans such as the Beni Asad were assigned to the Northern Wall. And finally, the Western Wall was assigned to the Beni Sahm and the Beni Jumah. Okay, so I've just hit you with a lot of clan names. Some of you may have heard of them before. Um, some I have not actually even mentioned in the podcast before. So I just want to take a moment to recap who the ones we've already mentioned are and introduce the ones who we have not mentioned before. Okay, so number one, Beni Abdemanef and their closely allied clans, the Beni Zahra. The Beni Abdemanef, the sons of Abdemanef, are the descendants of Abdemanef, who we mentioned already. And he was a son of Qusay. So this would include, uh, amongst many other clans, Muhammad's clan, the Beni Hashim, as Hashim was a son of Abdemanef. I hope that's clear. The Beni Zahra are a clan that are the sons of Zohra. So they are the descendants of a man called Zohra. Zohra, we have mentioned him already, and he is Qusay's older brother. The next grouping was the Beni Makhzum. The Beni Makhzum clan would be all the descendants of a man called Makhzum. Who was Makhzum? Makhzum, we haven't mentioned him before, he was actually Qusay's cousin. And the Beni Makhzum were one of the strongest clans in Mecca, arguably the strongest always at the forefront of the Cold War that was the internal politicking and quarrelling in Mecca. Uh, As we mentioned in a previous episode, um, they were quite a militaristic clan and instrumental in the initial conquest of Mecca under Qusay's leadership. So those are the Beni Makhzum, descendants of a man who was Qusay's cousin. Number three, Beni Abdiddar and their closely allied clans such as the Beni Asad. The Beni Abdiddar, we mentioned already, they are the sons of Abdiddar, aka the descendants of Abdiddar. And Abdiddar was a son of Qusay. Um, we mentioned him in one of the early episodes. He was Qusay's intended heir. Uh, he was the one that was given all the big five responsibilities until they were taken away from him after Qusay's death. The Beni Asad, who we've mentioned that are allies to the Beni Abdiddar. The Beni Asad are a clan that we have not mentioned before. Again, Beni means sons of. So the Beni Asad were descendants of a man called Asad. Who was Asad? Asad was the son of Abdul Uzza. Those of you with good memories, and I don't expect anyone to remember this, will remember that Abdul Uzza was actually another son of Qusay. Qusay had four sons. Abdul Manaf, who's been cropping up quite a lot due to him being a direct descendant of Muhammad. Um, Abdul Uzza, Abdul Dar, and Abd. So, 
the Abd al-Dar were allies with Beni Asad, who was the son of Abdul Uzza. Uh, you're probably thinking, why are they not known as the Beni Abdul Uzza? Um, why are they named after the son of this guy? Well, it's probably because this guy achieved more than his father. So his descendants would be more proud to distinguish themselves as the, son, as the sons of a man who's achieved more, if that makes sense. Number four, the Beni Sahim and the Beni Jumah. These are both new clans that we have not mentioned before. And they were the descendants of two brothers called Sahim and Jumah. Sahim and Jumah were Qusay's second cousins. So Qusay and these two brothers had the same great-grandfather. That's how it works. I hope that is clear now. I will put plenty of diagrams and family trees uh, on this episode's episode guide so that it is clearer. Sometimes things are much easier to understand when you can actually see them with your own eyes rather than just listening to them. If you're still not quite sure about something, uh, I know it can be a bit of muddling. Uh, I know it can be a bit muddling, sorry, with a bunch of foreign names. Then feel free to send me a question participate in my new scheme of answering a listener question every episode uh, in the footnotes after the outro theme music and at the end of the episode i'll give you more information on how to do this returning to 7th century mecca due to the superstition of the arabs initial progress on the building project stalled the people were simply afraid to demolish the temple they feared that if they were to harm the stones of the Kaaba, if they were to destroy them physically, that they would be cursed or smitten by the gods. The first person to actually begin work uh, picking away at the stones of the Kaaba was a man named Walid ibn al-Mughira, and he was from the Makhzum clan. Walid ibn al-Mughira, meaning Walid, son of Mughira, and this Mughira is the same Mughira that featured in one of our previous episodes if you remember, he was the man who stopped Abdul Muttalib from sacrificing his son. So Walid was the son of the chief of the Makhzum clan. Uh, so he was he was based, he was a noble man. So he had a high ranking in society. Before he swung his pickaxe to begin the process of demolition, um, it is said that he said, "Oh God, do not be afraid. Oh God, we only intend what is best." And I mentioned this statement because I think uh, it goes to show what the attitude towards uh, God was. After saying what he said, he began destroying the wall assigned to his clan. The people watched on and eventually decided to use Walid as a sort of crash test dummy, if you like. They would wait till the following night to see if anything happened to him. If he didn't wake up from his sleep that night or if he woke up and was suddenly ill without any explanation, or ended up in some sort of freak accident, they would take that as a sign from the gods that they were not pleased with the demolition of the temple. Again, the Arabs were very superstitious. If Walid woke up fine the next day, then they would begin work. And so Walid spent that day working on demolishing the Kaaba by himself as the people of Mecca looked on, wary, of the consequences that harm in the Kaaba might bring. The next day came along, and I am sorry to disappoint you if you were expecting otherwise, Walid woke up fine, he was healthy as ever, 
And soon he was joined by the other clans of Quraysh and the renovation of the Kaaba was well underway. The construction work was going well until progress reached the point of placing the sacred black stone which fitted snugly into the southeastern corner. So that means it was attached to the wall that Beni Abd al-Manaf was working on and the wall that Beni Makhzum were working on. And you've probably guessed it by now, judging on the previous quarreling that we have experienced uh, amongst the Arabs and amongst the Quraysh. The two bitter rivals butted heads and a quarrel arose as to who was to have the privilege of fitting the black stone into place. Eventually, it wasn't just them who wanted the honour, every clan did. And things escalated and all work on the Kaaba was brought to a sudden halt. The various clans set about forming confederations uh, in support of a clan's claim in the case of war breaking out. The Beni Abdaddar and their closely allied clans uh, who were working on the northern wall went to the extent of dipping their hands in blood to cement their alliance and their oaths. A stalemate formed and nobody was making any moves other than backroom diplomatic dealings seeking support in the case of violence breaking out. And so the clans of Quraysh were brought to a standstill and it stayed like this for the best part of a week. The deadlock was eventually brought to an end and a widely respected man who was said to be the oldest man in Mecca at the time suggested to the feuding clans, you know what, why don't we task this matter to an arbiter, a, a judge, someone who will decide what we should do. How about literally the next guy to walk into the masjid decides what should be done and we all respect his decision no matter what. The clans unanimously agreed and so they looked towards the one main entrance into the masjid to see who the judge would be. A quick translation here, masjid in Arabic translates to mosque, but the meaning at that time was place of prayer or place of prostration. So the masjid for the Kaaba would be the clearing or uh, the open courtyard, the precinct round the Kaaba where people would sacrifice animals to the gods, uh, where people would pray, etc. Back to the old man's plan, by accepting the elderly man's plan, the clans had essentially agreed to a divine lottery, a divine luck of the draw, because to them, the next person that walked in would obviously favour his own clans. You know, you need to get into the minds of these people. No matter who that person was, when they walked in, they would pick their clan for the honour of fitting the black stone. There was, there was no two questions about it. That was just just how things were back then. So the next guy that happened to walk in would be a sign of which clan the gods happened to favour for carrying out the task. It's a bit like the Roman legend of Romulus and Remus. Um, there are some parallels when they both sat around on a different hill waiting for a sign from the gods um, which site they favoured for the building of Rome. And the legend goes, when more birds happened to fly to Romulus's hill, this was taken as a sign from the gods that they favoured Romulus's location for founding the city of Rome. So it was a bit like a lottery 
where basically chance wins it and chance being basically what the gods desired so that was that was how they thought they didn't they didn't think that we're waiting for a guy to walk in and make a calculated judgment as to who deserves it or who should be the person to fit in the black stone it was just next guy that walks in he's obviously going to choose his own people his own clan and they're going to be the lucky ones so the clans waited around to see who would be the next to walk in and lo and behold it is muhammad from the beni hashim and the beni abdamanaf staying true to his reputation however as al amin the trustworthy Muhammad came up with an innovative solution to the problem where his clan would come out on top but the other clans wouldn't be too hard done by they wouldn't remain bitter and he asked for a cloak to be brought to him and then he requested that a delegate be put forward from each of the four groups uh, that were working on each of the four walls of the Kaaba he placed the stone in the center of the cloak and ordered each delegate to grab a corner of the cloak. He ordered them to lift it, and then he led them towards the gap where the black stone was to be fitted. Finally, he helped the four guide the black stone into its place with his own hands, thus satisfying all the parties and the clans involved. Unfortunately, that is all for today's episode. Before we leave, I just want to point you towards the brand new Facebook page that I have created for the podcast, facebook.com forward slash the history of Islam podcast. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash the history of Islam podcast. A link will be in the description uh, of the episode and it will also be found on the blog. Um, one more thing also before we leave is I just want to thank you guys that have been sending me messages in producing this podcast, the best thing so far has been by far reading messages from you guys. Uh, just the general support, uh, the kind words, and also the great suggestions that have done much to raise the bar uh, of the podcast. Um, a new one is also coming soon. It's going to be a timeline uh, which will be found on the podcast, which will show the events that we have been talking about and a a, a chronology that we are using here at the History of Islam podcast so you can see the events more clearly and this has been requested by a couple of people um, as has been the Facebook page actually a lot of people were telling me you need to get a Facebook page you need to get yourself on social media so please head over to Facebook give the page a like um, share it with your friends spread the word if you are enjoying the podcast which I'm assuming you are if you are listening to it Again, thank you for the support and the messages. I encourage those of you who haven't sent any messages to do so on the blog, on the contact page. And I guess that's all for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening again. And I'll see you next Thursday. Goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.